0: and welcome to the Flavor Text Podcast. I'm your host, Marina. And I'm Sunny. And ladies and gentlemen, we've done it. All all of your hard work with me emailing Wizards of the Coast, putting the gun to their heads, we have a Rusko card. <laughs> it was only because of us. Only because. Of our influence, Uh, it it says explicitly in the Twitter thread, people were asking, where's Rusko? And that's us. We were the only ones asking, where's Rusko? Us and you are, are beautiful listeners, and we finally have one. The only downside being... That it is alchemy only, which means uh, I cannot own a legal printed copy of this card. We have printers, so that's... So, yeah, I'll just just print him out my way. We'll we'll print him out
1: and we'll frame it. We'll put him on the mantelpiece
0: for Mm -hmm. all to see. Exactly. And... Uh, I gotta say, uh, just as a chuckle, thank you, Mod Lrd, for immediately tagging us. The it was, that this it was so
1: instantaneous, and we we're like, "Oh my god,
0: <laughs> he's here! He's here!" And and now we get to talk about him. Um, we are, we are foretellers. We are
1: prophets. Prophets. We are. The children of Gix. We
0: are. I mean, Gix was the first one of the cards we were demanding at gunpoint. We got a Gix card. Now we've got a Rusko card. What else can we demand? We have the power. We have so much power. The listeners, they're listening to us. I think, God, what what, what do I want? I want a 100-100 uh, Boo token card.
1: Fair. I, fair. I, I want
0: that for for when I make him big. I want <laughs> you Can you give me more Oko? Oh, uh, more Oko, I think. Can I just see see more Oko? Okay. okay, so I don't know. I'll I'll show you the video later. But somebody noticed, speaking of Arena, so Arena does like deals and oftentimes they'll have like theme deals on like avatars and cards and things like that. And they did what's absolutely hysterical, uh, what I call the shirtless deal. So it was like the Oco avatar and like cards that have like you know shirtless guys on the card. Thank God. And then you scroll all the way through the deals and at the the very very uh last one is the Fibblethip gremlin who's lost.
1: Oh no. <laughs> Cuz he's not wearing
0: a <laughs> he's <dirty> not. shirt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, thank God.
0: So uh What a bundle. Thought they wouldn't notice, but we did. <laughs> but we did. We saw. <laughs> we saw. I mean Marina saw. I saw. I trust Marina. I'll show you the proof later, but it was a it was a funny deal. I do appreciate that. Um so before we get started on story and chapter summaries, let's talk about Rusko because we demanded him and he's here. So flavor text now. Let's go. Let's well, go. There's no flavor text on this card, unfortunately. But yeah rusko clockmaker as i mentioned is a arena only card um i think i don't know if there's specifically a mechanic that he does that you couldn't technically replicate in real life but you would need a fuck ton of midnight clock cards to do it uh so for two and a blue and a black he's a three three legendary creature and when he enters the batter field, batter field, battlefield battlefield he enters the You conjure a card named Midnight Clock onto the battlefield. And then whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put an hour counter on each permanent you control named Midnight Clock. Each opponent loses one life, and you gain one life. So, uh, like, unless you're blinking him, I suppose you'd only need just one outside copy of Midnight Clock. So it's like a weird kind of sideboard that I don't know is like technically in Magic the Gathering rules, but that's the kind of thing where it's like if you were playing in paper, you'd just have it on the side, yeah, like, that, like a token.
1: I just don't understand how alchemy or arena works, so... So,
0: um, well, arena's just the online version, so it's an app. Right. Um, so that that's all arena is. I just,
1: I just like to pretend that
0: it's something else so that I don't touch it Fair. and spend money on it. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> uh, but essentially what alchemy is is it's a couple things um first of all alchemy is just a space for them to add cards that they didn't necessarily have room to print in the uh, in physical box sets which um is something that i was actually discussing on the particular uh orthos right about this particular card is um a lot of uh the benefits of alchemy is whatever they aren't able to do in the main sets they can now put into arena because who cares about like set properties, things like that, on the online digital scape. So, in a way, that allows us to have space for characters like Rusco. To which I say, why, well, why wasn't Rusco s- higher priority? Everybody, yeah, I'm, <laughs> like,
1: I'm so sad that
0: Rusco was so Rusco. As we will learn, was cut. He was cut. He was cut, and not only that, Rusco caused the brothers war. There's my hot take of the day. We'll hmm. we'll get to that later. Um, you know what? Hmm. I'll take it, I'll take it uh but the the main critique I see of alchemy, and it's something that um my fiance's actively experienced is they will for certain formats alchemy will update cards which means they will fundamentally change what the card does a little bit a lot of it depends on the card but the frustration there is when you're paying for packs in a, a game like this expecting to pay for a certain card and then that card is altered later that makes people question well then why would i want to spend money on these cards if they could just be changed at any point in the future And I think that's a totally valid critique, and I know a lot of people have fallen off Arena because of that particular critique. But that being said, um, Rusko's not one of those cards. Uh, Rusko is a completely uh, unique original card that was just put into the system. And I definitely, if I was still playing Arena, would absolutely make a a blink commander deck where he's just shitting clocks onto the battlefield. And then I, uh, like... The thing is, because midnight, midnight clock is just a really good card, uh, because you actually saw me play. Yeah, it last I saw week. that. Um, what it does is uh, every, the beginning of every upkeep, uh, including not your own, also your opponent's. You put an hour counter on midnight clock and. When you have 12 hours, counters on Midnight Clock, you exile it, you shuffle your graveyard and your hand into your deck, and then draw seven cards. So it's a way to get recursion, it's a way to get uh, a new hand if your hand's not super good. And in this particular case, uh, if you're blinking Rusko and just shitting Midnight Clocks, um, you can uh, have your opponent lose life and gain life from hour counters, especially if you have a ton of those. So... I don't know. Interesting potential synergy there and like I said I'm I'm definitely totally going to acquire it in certain ways because I want to play with it in real life. Um I like his his little visuals. He's just like he's just a poor little guy, but he's got an outfit similar to kind of what Urza's wearing in a way like with the color schemes. Yeah. Um and uh obviously he's got kind of like the artificer goggles and he just looks like a weird uncle. He does. He, he and looks, I like it. He looks like a portly little, like, uncle guy who just shows up at the family gatherings. Like my great uncle Rusko,
1: you know? Yeah. Like, he's, he's always talking about how you should put your name on shit, and... hmm and, and he's right. <laughs> and, he's, and he's right. He's
0: completely right, so... Thank you for everybody for immediately notifying us about the, uh, the fruits of our labor. Wow, we love you. And now, uh, think, think wisely on the power that we hold to, to summon cards into existence. Yes. So that we may claim more of this. Actually, I know exactly what card I want them to make, but it's not Brothers War related, it's Ice Age related, so like... I, I've mentioned to you, I, I know it's like mild spoilers, but I keep talking about it because it's funny, that uh, Jaya Ballard, when she when her spark ignited, it was because Joda hit her in the face of the mirror. Yes, uh, um, that uh, needs to be a card.
1: That needs to be a card,
0: because it technically is a card. There's a card that talks about it, but the way they depict it is they show her ascending, and it's so ethereal. But no, I want a fucking card that's like shows him viscerally just smashing it into her face and it's just like an instant or something that's like search your deck for a planeswalker and put it into your hand.
1: Yeah, just the fucking rawness I, I, of being hit in the face <laughs> with a goddamn
0: mirror. It's so funny and it's such a shame that there's no card depicting that. Like there's material here. So, all right, so all the wizards tomorrow to, to uh, Amy, to anybody who's listening... That's the card I want. That's the next one that I'm I'm willing into existence is uh I don't know what I'd call it, but that's the effect I'd want it to have. Uh Spark Ignite. Spark Ignite, there you go. Spark Ignition. We've we've got this. <laughs> <sighs> well, there's not a, a super ton of news. Um we've got the jumpstart sets I think came out like maybe a week ago. I know they are out and we're we're gonna be we're gonna be trying some in a couple weeks. Uh Jumpstart is, in theory, a very good way to uh, introduce new players to the game, if you haven't heard of the Jumpstart stuff. Uh, what they are is they're packs of, I think, 20 cards that are... They're not... Th- like, the theme inside is random, but the themes themselves are pre-made. So uh, it'll come with something on top that tells you what the theme is. It'll have, like, rares, commons, uncommons, and then lands uh, to make that theme go. And so for a Jumpstart, you pick two of those... So, you got a two color deck, you mash them together, and voila, you've got kind of a starter deck, and you can just go ahead and play um so uh, i know the original 2020 jumpstart was really well received uh i know they've done a couple others since then that were more of a mixed bag of receives but the newest one the 2022 it sets, has a bunny rabbit in it for starters has a bunny rabbit in it but i've also heard pretty good things about just like the mechanics and themes that they've integrated into the uh sets so i'm excited to play around with that
1: and a monkey
0: Oh yeah, uh, my fiancé made a-, a Kibo deck That um, is kind of funny Because I-, I may have mentioned on the podcast before He's got this curse where he'll be like This deck is gonna suck And then it annihilates me the first it's, time he plays it <laughs> It's
1: His decks are all scary And I don't know why he does it <laughs> Or how?
0: I don't know why he does it, because he's a maniac. That's why he knows this. Fair. Fair. (laughs) I'm calling you out right now, Richard. Uh, Now, what's... I think it's mostly just Kibo is a pretty good commander that just... Because he he did, like, ape tribal. He did apes and monkeys, of which there's just enough to essentially fill a deck, uh, coupled with just green and red aggro good stuff. But it's like, yeah, Kibo gives you a banana, every time you sack the banana, uh, like, or I guess if he destroys the artifact, cause he can make you sack the banana. Uh, he powers up all the monkeys. Uh, and on top of that, Kibo can just destroy any artifact. It doesn't have to be a banana. So it's like, oh, did you have ramp? Fuck you. Turn one soul ring? Fuck you. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, rough. It's rough. Playing against. I think it's rougher one-on-one if I had to be honest because I think uh while we were doing multiplayer we were a bit more able to keep them in check but at the same time Jesus Christ. It takes
1: didn't. more than one person to keep those apes down.
0: <laughs> Why are monkeys so strong? <laughs> and I Ape hear together. I, strong. strong. Fuck you're right and I hear his voice in my head right now that's like they they're they're suck they're awful every monkey card is a basic bitch. Ape together strong. strong. You should have known right from the beginning. And it's a group hug deck, so. It's a group hug deck where the monkey gives you a banana and then smashes you in the fucking face. It's perfectly, <laughs> perfectly symbiotic. Amazing. Fantastic. I... Can't wait to get my ass handed to me later with it again. <laughs> so yeah, try Jumpstart. Uh that's that's the news is um even if you're a longtime player, there's just some good cards in those decks. Um there are cards just worth literally buying the packs for. But also like uh I've I've seen people recommend that if you just want like fun things to do that aren't your same commander decks over and over again is save the um save the packs. And like keep them in little plastic baggies And then just randomly like like put them into a bin And have people randomly pick them at any time So you can get Jumpstart whenever you want Like you can Hell just you do know. it all the time So we'll probably be doing something like that uh, It's fun, try it That's it, that's all the news There's not a lot of news this week
1: I have news What's your
0: news? I love you guys <laughs> I love you guys too, you're amazing uh, Thank you for Copier. Copycat How dare you I'm gonna sandbag that as hard as I can <laughs> Thank you to the people who've been uh who've been engaging and emailing us, by the way. Uh you know who you are. We do try to respond to every emails as we get them. Uh but uh yeah, continue to uh Please interact with us. We love us. it. We love it. And uh with that, let's take a little break and then get started on our chapter summaries. Uh it's another I, I don't know if I would say it's quite as long as the last set, but chapter ten we, was pretty funny.
1: We got a long chapter, then followed by a short chapter,
0: so it's gonna be... It's gonna be a bit of a ride. Yeah. Uh, this This is... It's. I was saying it's not quite where shit hits the fan yet, but it's definitely the spark that's now trailing towards the dynamite. Yeah, it...
1: <laughs> we, <laughs> we can call it the inciting incident. Absolutely. No, the inciting incident is the them finding the stone. Probably, like you... This you is could, another inciting incident.
0: You could make the argument that that... Should have been what started off the, the little spark that's trailing towards the dynamite But I think that's the match I think this is the spark incident And then the dynamite is uh, essentially The end of Act 2 But let's see, we'll take a break, we'll come back And we'll discuss chapters 9 through 11 Okie dokie Alright, we're back Let's get started with Chapter 9, which is titled Ashnod uh, God bless. Bless. Parallel chapter to For people who are Remembering what happened last time, we got introduced to Thanos. So now it's the Ashnod chapter. It's been a few years since Mishra's young Kadir friend took the reins of the Suardi tribe, and it's not all been good development since then. Uh, the boy Kadir has grown into a man, uh, but maybe more appropriately has blossomed into an overweight tyrant who's been pampered by his tribe and supporters. Nobody says no to the Kadir without... Pretty much lethal consequences. So, uh, spoiled brat. But uh, as he grows more petulant and tyrannical, Mishra just grows more popular. He knows how to speak to the Kadir in such a way that he can essentially drop bad news without getting beheaded, and uh, because of that, uh, war captains, courtiers, and chiefs of other tribes are now coming to Mishra before they come to the Kadir, seeking his advice, and uh, essentially building a rapport. Of course, Mishra is still loyal to his kadir, but he's welcoming and open to the Falaji in a way that just makes him a popular kind of dude. His dragon engine is helping in their integration of other tribes. Many believe that the old ones are favoring the Falaji's attempts to keep desert free of Arjivian and Yosian invaders. Similarly, they kind of ignore the fact that Mishra is the one controlling it and believe the kadir to be the ruler of the Makfawa instead. Most importantly, that's kind of because the Raki might be controlling the dragon, but the Kadir's controlling the Raki. It is kind of experimented on a little bit, though, and it's found that only Mishra can control the dragon. Others who attempt to use the weak stone are met with no success. This means that Mishra gets to keep the weak stone, and over time gets better with it. Uh, Mishra eventually needs no words to communicate with the dragon at all. A gesture, a nod, maybe just a thought, is enough. Uh, We're given a brief overview through kind of the point of view of uh, Hadar, Hajar, excuse me, of uh, the Suardi conquering the city of Tomakul. Tomakul is the center of Falaji power. Um, The city dwellers there are pretty much easily conquered, uh, not even using the dragon engine, really. They've kind of grown lazy and weak in Falaji standards. They're prioritizing wealth, money, and the trade caravans that come from the surrounding coastal countries. They make a deal with the kadir, as long as the suwardi do not interfere with their daily lives, they're content to open their gates to him. Um, the kadir doesn't enter the city, but Mishra and Hajar do, and we get kind of an overview of what Tomakul is like, as well as some interesting drops. Uh, Tomakul is an intersection of trade routes from Sarinth to Krug, conversing with Teresia City to the far west, which is a city of scholars who traded with the Falaji for artifacts and old tales. The city itself of Tomacool is a, uh, quote, cavalcade of different people. We see dwarves from Sargia, we see Minotaur mariners, and uh, dropped here like a fucking footnote, the holy men of distant geeks. Don't don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. The
1: holy men of distant geeks. Don't. We're just going to walk past that one. <laughs>
0: it's dropped like a, like a single line. It's so fucking funny how much they sandbag that. They're just like, yeah. They're here. Who's kicks? Fuck you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry it. about It's about fine. It. It's fine. It's not going to be plot relevant. It's not plot relevant in the slightest. Uh, after we get that look at Tomakul, uh, we cut back to Hajar and Mishra, and Mishra is making an argument to the Kadir that he wants to head to Teresia for their knowledge. Uh, if they've got artifact knowledge, if they've got, uh, you know, ancient artifacts at all, they might have power stones, they might have just things that might help the Falaji out, but the Kadir doesn't want to do that. The Kadir is pushing them south instead to Zigon, which shares its heritage with the Falaji, and uh, the Kadir believes it should rightfully be part of their new empire. Uh, with that, uh, we follow Hajar's point of view again, uh, and cut to present day, where he's musing about how the army is stalled outside the capital city of Zegon, and the dragon's misbehaving. When they get to about half a mile away from the capital, the dragon simply refuses to get any closer to the city. It can move backwards, left, right, but not any closer. Obviously, the Kadir's pretty pissed off about this, and demands to know why the dragon won't approach the city. Uh, demands to know what the fuck's going on with the dragon at all, and Hajar kind of thinks to himself, well, you've been having us running across the fucking continent impressing or conquering other tribes, we've had no time to figure out how this thing works or why it works, so yeah, we don't know what the hell's going on here. Eventually, the Kadir settles on a siege. He's gonna have the dragon patrol the border of the city and demolish the smaller towns, which will drive the people towards Zegon and prevent trade until the city submits. Hajar kind of thinks this is a waste, but nobody dares disagree with the Kadir out loud. Interestingly, Mishra doesn't speak up either. Uh, In fact, he begins to plan siege tactics, and Hajar wonders, not for the first time, why Mishra doesn't just overthrow the Kadir or run away with the dragon. The answer is apparent in Mishra's lack of ambition. He shows absolutely no desire to rule an empire. He wants to be the power behind the throne instead. Uh, With that, the siege tactics are planned, and uh, afterwards, Hajar follows Mishra back to his tent. The tent is located at the edge of camp, in case Mishra summons another dragon engine on accident,
1: yeah, they know they mentioned that, and I'm just like, it's not unheard of. It's a viable fear, considering what happened
0: last time. Last time was a bit of a tragedy. Yeah, uh, but turns out there is an expected visitor waiting in Mishra's tent for them. The visitor is a woman, among the most cruelly beautiful women Hajar had ever seen. She has red hair, which is considered an evil omen among the sorority. Uh Can't be ginger. It's, that's, fuck you. Fuck gingers. They're awful. Uh, she has stunning green eyes and, uh, quote, mannish armor that has been cut and shaped to figure, favor her figure.
1: Yeah, and not, the, and not the function. No. Like, it's specifically, she's like, I want this to look good on me. I want to look good, baby. And I'm like,
0: you know what, girl? Okay. You get it.
1: Okay. All you right. get it. Yeah.
0: Fashion and function. Let's get in there. <laughs> I don't know how much, how good it functions anymore, but god damn, do you look hot. Like, because there's, there's the two depictions of Ashnod we have now. We have the old depiction, which has her in just essentially slut bondage gear. And then we've got the new card that we're going to discuss later. And I think it looks pretty good on her. Like, it looks like it's both functional and okay. it kind of fits the description, in my opinion. So I think it's okay. And Hajar also thinks it's really okay and kind of has to take a minute to calm his dick. I mean, <laughs> we all gotta. We all gotta. We all gotta. Uh, the woman is surprised to have been expected at all and Mishra explains that he wasn't explicitly expecting her, but was expecting someone like her uh, to represent the Zigon rulers to make a deal, negotiate for peace. Mishra offers her some wine, and eventually sends Hajar away after the woman insists that she came to speak to Mishra alone. Hajar disapproves, but obeys and leaves the tent.
1: Does he? Does he obey?
0: Shh, spoilers. <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> the woman admits... That she was not sent by the rulers of that she was sent by the rulers of Zegon, but it's not Zigoni herself. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh and uh, at that point, Mishra introduces himself. He's Mishra, Raki of the Suwari, and the woman introduces herself as Ashnod. Of nothing in particular.
1: I love that line. It's really good. It's
0: really good. She's mm-hmm. like,
1: I'm Ashnod of nothing in particular, yeah, I guess. Who fucking
0: cares? And uh, she is not particularly loyal to Zegon, and in fact theorizes that she was the one set as a diplomat, because if she's killed, it's no skin off their backs. Mishra asks what offer she's here to present, but before she talks about that, she pulls out a long black thunderwood staff, topped by a tangle of copper wiles and the narrow skull of an unknown sea creature, which I think which a we chapter learned. from now is just a dolphin. It's literally <laughs> just a dolphin head. So, fucking... Dolphins can be pretty big. <laughs> You're right. That's fucking... Like, how did
1: they not, like, m- like offhand, like, mention <laughs> the skull ne-
0: next to her? Like, it, there, there are some small dolphin species, don't get me wrong. And, like, clearly, if it's a skull on a staff that she's wielding, it can't be as big as, like, a bottlenose skull. But, like... I can't help but picture that when you say dolphin. So I'm picturing her with this just gigantic fucking clacker of a skull on this like little stick.
1: Hey, hey. It's like one of those um grabby dinosaur ones. Oh my that you, god, you're so right. That you get at the Natural <laughs> History Museum. Oh my
0: god. picturing! Yeah! as the wires and everything. Yeah, the wires are to make the skull open and close so she can do some, like,
1: ventriloquy with it. And pick stuff up that are, that's, uh, more than an arm's length
0: away. Exactly. So, yeah, she's got the staff and, uh, she starts summoning lightning-style magic, which is I think at this point, one of the first actual uses of just straight up magic, uh, that the book goes into, because like, yes. we've got the power stones that do their own thing, but everything before and around this has been like artifacts and yes. the, the controlling and, and operation of artifacts. And, and then Ashnod comes in and just like, yeah, I'm going to cast spell of, of pain. <laughs> it's literally just that though. It's literally just that. Um, Mishra, after seeing her cast the spell, hears Hajar give a choked scream outside the tent. Hajar was listening in, uh, turns out, and Ashnod is punishing him for it with a spell. And the spell of hurt bone. Spell of bone hurting juice. (laughs) Yes. Literally, that's pretty much what it is. Um, So, uh, Mishra. Goes to Hajar and uh, kind of seems pleased by Ashnod's actions, which Hajar notices and goes, what the fuck, dude? Why are, why are you happy about me, me here screaming on the ground? But Mishra's like, all right, dude, real cute, but, but, but get out get out of here. Like, okay? you you need to go. You need to go. Uh, I, I want to talk to Ashnod before any of the guards arrive. I want a one-on-one with her. And Hajar's like, fucking fine. Okay, I get it. I, I don't want my bone hurting juice anymore. <laughs> like, and then I'm- actually gets out of there. Poor thing. So uh, Mishra turns to Ashnod and uh, essentially comments that Ashnod's tipped her hand by casting that spell on Hajar, and asks if the staff Ashnod has is what's keeping the dragon engine at bay. He realized that the guards along Zegon's walls have similar staffs, not with the dolphin skull, but the similar, you know, Blackwood staffs. Unfortunately, though, it looks like the staves have a flaw, taking a heavy toll on the user. He says, after using it only briefly, you are sweating. To which Ashnod says, "Men sweat, women glow." Girl, <laughs> girly. I love that fucking line.
1: Women glow.
0: <laughs> Flips her fucking hair. Original fucking girl boss, right here. <laughs> girl, girl boss, gaslight gatekeep is is Ashnod.
1: God bless Ashnod. Actually,
0: Ashnod. Uh, my, is my poor little meow meow of this book, uh, and does nothing wrong ever in the entirety of the book. Never, never a thing. Not a single thing wrong. No war crimes. I'm sure. I'm sure she's she has a glowing resume. Uh, definitely glowing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So we uh, we cut back to this discussion of of Zegon, and it turns out the Zegoni confidence in turning away the Suwardi dragon has now been tempered by their men weakening from the stave's use. Since Ashnod's the one that gave them the staves, they blame her for this, and thus sent her to negotiate for peace. They offer a Tomakul's deal. They surrender and pay tribute to recognize the Kadir as leader, and then go on with their lives. Mishra thinks that's pretty reasonable, although he admits that the Kadir will likely need some convincing after the dragon's been halted for so long. With that, Mishra kind of goes scholar mode, uh, wanting to see Ashnod's staff and ask how it works. He sees some Thran influence, but is otherwise at a loss. Ashnod tells him it affects the nerves of the body. The lightning upsets the body's mechanism that allows one to feel and distinguish pain, regardless of if they are biological or machine. Mishra then admits he's never compared the body to a machine, and Ashnod tells him bodies are the best machines. They're tested in the field, continually growing and self-replicating. She believes if they understand the mysteries of the body, they will understand the world. Hmm, that sounds like... (laughs) Somebody else I know. God, I'm getting visions of another meow meow in my life. <laughs> huh. But, hmm, I don't know sexy, if that's going to... Sexy. Huh? Sexy. Huh?
1: Scientific. Uh-huh. The body is a machine.
0: Uh-huh. Black mana oriented. Black mana.
1: Uh-huh. Hmm. I don't think... I don't think we've seen anybody like that before. I don't
0: know. I don't know I don't, you know, it, it'll come to me. I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure it'll
1: come to us at <laughs> some point.
0: At some point, uh, we might remember the name. Uh, so Misha is outwardly grateful for for what he considers the first real conversation he's had in a long while. These, uh, aren't particularly, uh, scientifically oriented, uh, and he, uh, essentially kind of makes a comment where it's like, yeah, the, the, uh, just tell me to just go here and do this. Uh, they don't really, like, question why the dragon engine works, they don't really question, like, how it operates, but he sees a kindred soul in Ashnod. In fact, he mentions to Ashnod after this discussion that he's pretty certain he can convince the Kadir to accept Zegon's request, but only if the Zegon pay for their token resistance. The usual payment for this is a hostage to ensure obedience, and he wants the Zegon's premier artificer, Ashnod. Mishra, however, isn't going to take her early on as a hostage, he wants her as an assistant, and it turns out that's precisely what Ashnod wanted too, and the reason she agreed to be a diplomat to the Falaji to begin with. Mishra agrees to start teaching her first thing in the morning. Though, for the evening, they'll be alone. So they fuck! <laughs> they, I really- I am- lied! Mishra is getting some! He's getting some with the second most gorgeous woman on Dominaria! Get it, God boy! God bless. I lo- Get it!
1: I love how they fade to black on these. Like, it's very- it's very tasteful and very smooth. It's classy. It's very classy, but we know they fucked. Oh yeah, they, fought. they it, fucked. They fucked hard. There's
0: no doubt. There's absolutely no doubt. The next day, Zegon joins the Empire, uh, symbolically removing the gates to their city so that they never stand in opposition to the Falaji again. They then give up their best artificer to the Falaji as the Rakis apprentice. And if any of the warriors feel uncomfortable about the presence of the cold-eyed woman with cursed hair, they don't say so or Mishra can overhear. From there, word arrives of outlanders along the coast raiding Falaji lands. So, once again, they turn east. End chapter nine. (laughs) God. It just took, like, a couple more chapters, but now Mishra's finally getting the lay he deserves. Yeah,
1: just a little delayed gratification, but he got there. He got there. He got there, and now he's getting his dick wet.
0: Yeah, I'm stick so wet.
1: fucking proud of him. I'm
0: also proud of him. Um, I love how their dynamic really it's so apparent from the get-go because, like, Ashnod is introduced as his apprentice and is clearly learning from him, but they've got a rapport. They've got a really fun rapport that I wouldn't call, like, master and apprentice, I wouldn't call lovers either because they're not. And I think, like, even in the next kind of chapter, like, you... I think people comment, like, is is she your lover? No. <laughs> like, she, she's my apprentice, explicitly. But, like, they they are very just... Like, dumb idiot friends with each other. And I like that dynamic a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that, that also fuck. They also they also just fuck. That, and that that's is a just, thing they do on the and side.
1: It, he, <laughs> human relationships are just complicated like that. They
0: are. And you'll see, not in these chapters, but in next episode, too, they go on some pretty fucking wild-ass adventures together. Oh, which, God bless. Which I love. But, like, man, I... <laughs> I just, I do love um, kind of even to just the difference in how Thanos and Ashnod are introduced. Like, obviously they're like opposite sides of a board and like Thanos has to to really work to get Urza's attention. But Ashnod has Misha's attention from like minute one, like immediately like it just knows exactly how to pique his interest exactly like i i would even go so far as to say because misha's like you tipped your hand you showed me your magic she did that on fucking purpose she did oh, that yeah, on purpose she... knowing misha would be like mm. yeah <laughs> i think
1: i think the apprentices relationships with their masters are pretty indicative of the masters themselves absolutely because urza only like Not to say turned on, but, like, interested Mm -hmm. in novelty, in new, like, innovation.
0: He's interested in innovation, and he's interested with people who can hyperfixate with him. Yes. But, like... And and Misha also was seeking that stimulation, but it's, again, very clear from the get-go, that's not all he's getting from Ashnod. Like, he's getting someone who he has a rapport with, like, both physically and, like, platonically, and you'll see with their relationship as they go, like, she ends up being kind of an advisor for him. She ends up just straight up being his second-in-command. There's a reason why she's such a forefront character, and poor Hajar is just the bodyguard. Yeah. And, like, how the relationship of their apprentices grows in terms of uh, with their masters and also how Ashna and Thanos meet is, uh, is going to be really fun to, to look at as it goes. Yeah. But there's our introduction to best girl. Uh, the only character in this book that matters. The only one. <laughs> the only one. The
1: only one Matt, that...
0: Committed no war crimes at no. all. No.
1: <laughs> She's fine. It's She's good. It's, it's all right. It's all fine.
0: <sighs> so... With that, I think we shouldn't delay. We should get into chapter 10, which is Corliss, and it's a pretty long one, so buckle Strap down. In. Uh, th- this this is almost like an entire little like short story of its own. Yeah, it's packed. It's pretty packed. So let's get in there. We cut back to uh, Yosha, we cut back to Krug, and Urza has missed so many War Council meetings that he's essentially no longer invited. <laughs> Good job, Urza. You did it. You you
1: socially engineered your way out of this one.
0: (laughs) Instead, Rusko serves as his official representative, but Kayla knows that Urza barely talks to him, let alone talks to anyone. In fact, he spends most of his time with his new apprentice, Thanos, who lasted much longer than anyone predicted he'd last. In terms of what's going on in the city... There is a new captain of the guard who is working to secure a corridor to the city of Tomakul to protect the trading caravans that go there. However, armed caravans have been provoking more attacks from the Falaji. Yosha doesn't have the manpower to maintain its own borders and guarantee safe passage to the desert capital, so the new captain is recommending finding the Falaji base of operations, the Suwardi Kadir, and crushing him, pulling out the desert invaders by the route. Unfortunately, though, nobody really knows where the Kadir is. We know it's because the Kadir is pretty much on the move all the time. The Warlord of Krug does not want to risk his people in foreign territory without a more solid plan. The Ornithopters are mentioned as scouting possibilities, but there's still very few of them at the moment, and Urza doesn't want to risk them either. The question also comes up of the search for power stones. Both Yosha and Argive have had a difficult time finding them with raiders patrolling the deserts. The Warlord thinks that maybe it's time for a different tactic in fact, why don't we bring the coastal nations together in an alliance against the desert tribes? He thinks that if the coastal nations offer peace together with a combined front, they can lure the desert leaders out and then deal with them all at once. They believe, they believe that the Corlesian merchants, who don't share a border with the Falaji and are more neutral, can send the invitation and um, ally with them, they can ally with Corlys in return for sending ornithopters their way. So this is all from the point of view of Kayla, and, um, Kayla doesn't really get the undertones of this conversation that I've mentioned, thinking instead that maybe they're just trying to get an actual peace talk in place, which she does kind of note is weird and feels like her father's up to something, and I'm gonna chalk that up to, like, I feel like... uh, I feel like, like, maybe the portrayal here was naivety, but at the same time, like, she clearly thinks her father's up to something, and in my mind, it's not that hard to think of the undertone of what's going on here when he's explicitly like, well, get them all together in one place! We'll lure them out! I feel like
1: it's not naivete, but a hope that it's not what she thinks is the worst
0: maybe so uh i could take that uh negotiation or not negotiate i could take that interpretation too um but i i did i did find that particular passage a little odd because kayla absolutely like Kayla's not a stupid character no she's been pretty good at reading people and pretty good at figuring out like the the nuances of, of what her father's like intent is and so it just kind of struck me as odd it's like this is the one time that she didn't put that together either that or denial you yeah know? maybe denial maybe maybe that's what that is um so the meeting adjourns and Rusko stays behind on mention of a special project to discuss with the warlord. You can take the implication there from previous chapters that he's definitely talking about the gunpowder project. Uh so I'm gonna I'm gonna put that little sticky note in there for y'all to put mull a, over. Put a
1: pin in that
0: one. Put a pin in that one. Uh Kayla, we are still following her, goes to the ornery, where her husband and Thanos are currently working on an Ornithopter together. She watches them for a moment and notices that Thanos is pretty good looking with a shirt off. <laughs> Hmm. Mm. <laughs> hope that doesn't come back later I'm uh, sure it won't But she's it's here fine. for her husband And demands his attention At this point uh, I make mention because I had forgotten This this offhand sentence That Urza's hair has turned entirely white Likely due to the amount of work he's been doing So I think that's why he looks so ancient on his cards Yeah as they were that doing makes a lot the, of sense er- When I read that I was like
1: Oh. So he's
0: not an ancient old man. He's just an early, early grayer. And I understand that my, my family's early grayer. So he must just be similar. Urza claims he's too busy for Kayla to which Kayla retorts. He's always busy except when he's sleeping. And even then he's restless. So he's still kind of busy. Uh, and then she kind of just talks to Urza despite and mentions her father's plotting something, wanting to meet with the Falaji, despite never having wanted to meet with them before is kind of dismissive here, and I think the implication is mostly that he's hyper-focusing too much on the Ornithopter to really think about what Kayla's saying here. He takes the news at face value and is just like, yeah, your father's vying for peace. G- great, what's the problem with that? Like, stop overthinking it. Like, get out of here. I'm working on the Ornithopter. Yeah, he's definitely, like,
1: sandbagging. It's like, I I have other things to do. Mm-hmm. Not to worry about your
0: silly little problems, Mm. wifey. Wifey. And she gets pissed and leaves in a pretty angry huff. And I don't blame her. Yeah, no. Fuck Urza. Fuck Urza. That was a pretty hard dismissal. And um, this this is one of those... Moments in the choose-your-own-adventure game where it's just- It's not even just Kayla will remember this, but this is a branching path. Yeah, it's like,
1: you you fucked up.
0: I see the branching path where Urza took her seriously, and the whole brothers' war was prevented. Unironically. Like, I I see that pathway. But we don't. Butterfly wings. Butterfly effect. But we don't have that. Instead, the following month, the announcement is made that Argive, Yosha, and Corlys will be meeting to discuss the Desert Raider problem. Runners are sent under a flag of truce to Khtomakul, Zegon, and other Falaji towns to invite the kadir of the Suwardi to attend as well. Safe conduct is promised for everybody. This is not a trap. It's not. Shut up. <laughs> don't Safe
1: think... conduct. Don't, don't bring your weapons.
0: Don't bring anything. Don't worry it's about gonna it. be fine. It's totally fine. The town of Corlinda is selected for the meeting, which is an outpost of Corliss by the Cor River. These people truly have a unique naming convention. They love their river core. <laughs> um, Kayla believes that the location was picked because the Falagi would be far from their traditionally claimed land, and the, quote, civilized nations would have a warning of how large the party was before it arrived.
1: Urza is. Not to judge it or anything, or oh. like to size them up, or, you know, prepare. Yeah, no. In. Kind.
0: Not not doing any of that. No, no, no. No, we're not doing that. Also also love the touch of how uh, the coastal nations are referred to as, like, the civilized nations. I'm just like, hmm. And it's only in the Urza-specific chapters. And they do put it in quotations. They do.
1: They do put it in quotations,
0: however. <laughs> the implication's there. The, the implication's definitely there. Urza's pried away from the ornery because uh, two of the older ornithopters are to be given to Corliss as a gift for setting this whole thing up. In fact, a full force of a dozen winged machines will be flown as a show of force, uh, with two of them to be left behind for Corliss. Urza needs to be present mainly to tell the Corlysians how to operate them. Still, Urza works out a schedule to ensure he's only away for the minimum amount of time, leaving Thanos in charge while he's out. Also, the metal humanoid that Urza made to win Kayla's hand will also be there for some reason. Show of technical prowess, maybe. It's, Um, It's all very... Uh, how long is your dick? Yeah, it's definitely, like, like a dick showing off kind of thing. And I I do love, there's a whole scene where, like, Rusko's like, yeah, I'm gonna take it there on a caravan. And Urza's like, it can walk itself. It can walk there. itself. Can walk and Rusko's like, what if it fucking trips and dings itself? What are you gonna do, idiot? It's like, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus, Rusko, okay, fucking fine, Christ.
1: Like, Urza has <laughs> such confidence in his fucking shit
0: that he's just like, like, what's the problem? What's the problem? And then, like, Rusko calls him on it. He's just like, okay, okay all right, okay. Jesus, okay, I, I didn't, I didn't, fuck, Jesus, okay. Get out of here. Uh, all right, so Kayla is going to remain behind. She's not going to the meeting. Uh, this is for her safety. Important note for later. Yeah, and, I was like, hmm, uh, that's weird. Yeah, I wonder why the warlord would be leaving his daughter behind. Mm, good question. In peace talks. In peace talks. Good question. Uh, There are celebrations made for the departures of the Warlord's party at Midsummer's Day, and for the Urza helicopter liftoff 20 days later. The Ornithopters aren't exactly a huge, like, new deal, because Urza's been flying them over Krug before, but the people have never seen so many at once take off, so there's a pretty big crowd that comes to watch them go. Kayla is there to wish her husband well. And we get a very interesting kind of third-person scene wherein the crowd imagines the tender words she might have whispered to Urza at his departure, and many claim that they saw her eyes dampen as the ornithopter army left. I give you a direct quote from the book. In the days and months that followed, some would say she had wept because her husband was leaving her. Some would say it was because she had dreamed what was about to happen and knew she could not change it. And some would say that she knew that the end of her small part of the world and the destruction of Krug would begin at the Council of Corliss. Foreshadowing! That's, that's not
1: <laughs> ominous at all. I'm sure it'll be fine.
0: It's fine. It's gotta be fine. Nothing bad is happening. Nothing here. bad ever happens. In Brothers War. Never. In Brothers War. Nothing bad
1: is Nothing ever bad happens in
0: books. No. You're right. It's always happy. it's always good. It's always good. Uh, Romeo and Juliet. That was just a happy little a love ha- story, right? <laughs> it's yeah, just a little <laughs> little fun romp in uh, Italy. Yeah, exactly. So we uh, we cut back to the ornithopter army, and they perform well enough. It takes them only four days to make the trip to Corlinda. We get a kind of interesting little, uh, I guess, world building uh, at like. Uh, ...section where Rusko, on the way, set up a series of base camps between Krug and Korlinda as check markers for the journey, each with fully uh, operational beds and meals when Urza's flying troops arrive. The main problem that delays them is that when they land at these base camps, there are hundreds of d- civilians who are crowding around the Ornithopters, asking how they work. Uh, young kids and teenagers uh, are wanting like little rides, and the pilots are uh, taking volunteers up for the rides. And Urza's kind of just like, this is stupid, this is dumb, why are you doing that? Don't let the kids and the Ornithopters... Don't let them nah, touch nah, it! Nah, nah, nah. Uh, we get a little bit of information that it turns out Rusko has chosen these pilots and not Urza. Urza mentions kind of internally that he would have chosen people who are a little less reckless. Uh, these pilots are enthusiastic and often do stunt flying. And I like there's kind of a subtlety here that the pilots are definitely reminding him of Mishra.
1: Um, oh, yeah. I, I
0: think that's explicitly why he's a little, like, weirded out by it. Just like, no, they're too reckless. Like, uh, I, I kind of like that parallel. Yeah, that I, I didn't notice that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The meeting point for this peace talk is a site connected at the juncture of the three civilized nations, with a small sliver of no man's land there as well. It's a large level field with a great open-air pavilion erected in the center over a raised platform. There are four other camp areas surrounding the pavilion, one for each attending nation. As Urza arrives, he notices that the Falagi have not reached the meeting place yet. Urza makes note of interacting with the Argivian side of things, but doesn't see any former students of Takasia. It's just bureaucrats who've arrived, along with ornithopters that totally aren't as cool as his. <laughs> They're old <laughs> hat. They're old. They're rusty. The coalitions are also there with a female lord of the council, which is pretty neat. Uh, no name for her though. <laughs> that's, that's all. It's just mentioned. Uh, the opening of the talks begins and ends without the Fallagi there. There's introductions and professional courtesies and a feast, a lot of talk of cooperation, etc. Urza spends the day dressed up and being uncomfortable. I don't blame him. As does everybody else, though. Yeah, everybody else is. I would be uncomfortable. The second day comes and goes, and at this point, talks are starting to get a bit more dicey. Argive refuses to admit that they've been going into the desert to search for power stones, but does admit they have power stones to bargain with for agreements from Yosha and Corliss. Corliss is already in civil war over which of the merchants will maintain control over the Ornithopters. Oh, good. It's been 24 hours. It has literally been a day. Can Can you all just not? Just make more. On the third day, the Falaji show up. The others at this point have kind of given up hope and considered their delay an insult. However, nobody sees them arrive due to a low mountain fog covering the area. As the fog burns away, the Falaji are just suddenly there, tents fully erected. Score one drama point for me straight here. That was plain. That was style. That was style. I, I love that, actually. The Kadir arrives on a litter carried by servants and is followed by the giant dragon engine, which at this point, none of the other three nations have seen. So that's kind of a big oh my god, oh my god, what the fuck is this? It's a tank dragon. <laughs>
1: um, why did you bring mm. that IBM here? Hmm. Hmm.
0: Urza lines up with the others to greet the Falaji as the Kadir's entourage approaches, and then realizes as a stocky individual steps out from behind the litter that Mishra is among them. He pointedly doesn't notice Ashnod nor her dolphin staff, because we have once again established that Urza is not only asexual, but hyper-focused on his brother at all times. (laughs) Yeah. Mishra. Mishra! Uh, The two brothers uh, sort of give each other a curt nod, though Urza isn't really sure if Mishra had seen him or was just nodding at the the whole party that was uh, greeting them. Mishra steps forward to speak for the kadir, introducing himself as Chief Advisor Mishra, and says the Kadir hopes matters to be resolved here to prevent further bloodshed. He also apologizes for their tardiness as they came by unstable mountain paths that they hadn't traveled before, and it takes a while. With that, the Kadir asks for a noon meeting and time to prepare for said meeting. As he leaves, Mishra following behind him, Urza calls out to Mishra. Mishra! <laughs> like, in front of everybody, in front of everybody, it causes a pretty big buzz of gossip because everybody's just like, "Oh my god, oh my god, they're, they're brothers! They're brothers!" Ashnod, uh, in a kind of cute scene, gets a little protective over Mishra for a minute. Uh, I, I think it's really kind of cute. Like she's like, she fucking squares up and tells Mishra, "She's like, no no, 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 no,
1: no, no. He's he's actually my
0: brother. He's actually my bro. Calm down." Uh, the Ocean Warlord looks disapproving at this outburst until Rusko quietly tells him to shut the fuck up. Like, n- dude, do, do, n- let let, let don't them do happen. it. Don't. Mm-mm. Urza descends from the pavilion to greet Mishra properly. They stand a short distance apart from each other, arms both folded. They look kind of stern. Brother, says Urza. Brother, replies Mishra. <laughs> Man, they are so happy to see each other. <laughs> There's a pretty long silence as they study each other. But eventually they talk, and Urza's actually the one who speaks first, saying it's good to see Mishra well. They are obviously surprised to see each other, and they speak a bit on what they've been doing since they parted, in the form of revelations about why the other side has been acting the way they have. So Urza goes, ah, you're the reason the Falaji have been doing things like this. And Mishra's like, ah, you're the reason that Yosha's got a fuck ton of Ornithopters. Like, that <laughs> That tracks. That tracks. Urza admits he's married, and Mitra is understandably shocked at this. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, Urza at this point asks if Ashnod is his own wife. Nope, just an apprentice he bones occasionally. <laughs> Casual. The conversation ends on Urza commenting about the dragon engine, and mentioning, too, that he's upgraded the ornithopter designs that they worked on in Takasia's camp. He offers for the two of them to meet after the talks are done to discuss designs, and Mishra agrees to it. Before Mishra can leave again, Urza stops him the mite stone around his neck feeling heavy. When Mishra turns back, his hand is touching the pouch resting on his chest with the weak stone inside. Urza kind of has a tender moment here. He admits it's good to see Mishra again, and Mishra returns the sentiment. Urza then says they need to talk about the past, and Mishra counters that the past exists all around them, and the only question is whether or not they choose to dig it up. We cut to the warlord, who's summoned Urza immediately after that whole display. And is like, why the fuck didn't you tell me your brother was (laughs) working for the Qadir and was Falati? What the fuck? And Urza's like, dude, I didn't even know he was alive. And what's with the dragon? (laughs) And what's with this? And Urza's just like, bro, 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 I had no fucking clue. Like, you think I'm I'm not my brother's keeper? Mm -hmm. Look, I thought he was fucking dead, bro. And uh, eventually, the warlord is just like, okay, okay, the only thing that ma- that matters is, can you build one of those, too? And Erza goes, well, sure, but only if I get a chance to study it. Uh, but then he admits it's a lot more advanced than any Thran device he's seen, and maybe not even Thran at all. Hmm. Hmm, I wonder. I wonder. The warlord hints at this point that the Falaji have outplayed them by showing up with a mechanical dragon. Argive and Corliss are ready to bolt at the sight of it, but the warlord knows that they have to respond in kind or else the Falaji will walk all over them. Urza doesn't question this because he's Urza and he's thinking about (laughs) Mishra. One track mind, that Urza. One track mind. We cut to Noon and the meeting of the four nations. Mishra starts with a statement from the kadir, essentially laying down the borders of the Falaji nation and making it ultimately clear that they want to regain all Falaji land and protect that land from invaders, raiders, and would-be conquerors. A pretty reasonable statement. Honestly. Yeah, nothing, no, nothing
1: like. Outrageous. No outrageous demands.
0: I, I really actually kind of love about this because I was talking about the um the Savage Native trope and how it how it's uh fairly prominent in this book, but with this particular whole entire scene, that trope is very much thrown at the window. Like despite how aggro the Falagi are, they did come to this table legitimately to negotiate. Yeah, they, they were like, Okay, yeah. yeah like, we'll talk things out. We'll talk things out. Like we we want these borders, we want this land back that you've taken, and and we'll be at peace. We just want our land. That's all we want. Um but that's uh that's not gonna happen, unfortunately. The Yoshin Warlord is uh getting that boomer energy again. And uh it's, Not just
1: not just the generational one. Uh, We're talking
0: Fallout Boomer. Uh we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> So the warlord kind of snipes at the statement and pretty much macro aggresses the Falaji to their face. He's <laughs> just like, "Y'all are a bunch of savages!" Like, you know how how fucking dare you demand this of me? And he calls the Kadir an idiot to his face. But oops, the Kadir speaks Arjivian. Nice going. <laughs> he he heard that whole thing. Erza and Misha try to calm both parties respectively, but the meeting descends into a quite a bit of an argument between the Kadir and the warlord. We learned some interesting, uh, what, what I think is kind of a fun reveal. So, one of the lands that the Kadir wants is the Sword Marshes. Uh, turns out they're not the Sword Marshes, they're actually the Suardi Marshes, and that name has just been, uh, you know, language Romanized. Pointed, Romanized. And the Kadir wants it back. The Warlord admits, no, you're not getting it back. I fucking colonized it. Good job to admit that, Warlord. <laughs> <laughs> no! I colonized it! I conquered it! Mine! 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 How dare you! And then at this point, the warlord escalates things to a breaking point. He has all of the ornithopters take to the air in a show of power, which is definitely not anything Urza was told about. Urza, in fact, is actively protesting this audibly as it's happening, but the warlord looks at him and says, this is a lesson in power, one he hopes Urza will learn as well. The ornithopters aren't just flying, Remember the goblin bombs?
1: Remember that pin Remember earlier? that pin?
0: We're, we're taking that pin out. It's the surprise tool for later. Yeah, the warlord is dropping those right on the Falaji camp and on the dragon engine. The dragon engine retaliates, though, with Mishra controlling it from afar, taking one of the ornithopters out of the sky. Uh, still, the warlord laughs at the display while the other delegates run for cover. The peace talks are pretty much... Over and done,
1: peace talks like mm. there was ever any peace to begin with
0: it's It's very clear that this was the warlord's plan from the beginning, and the dragon engine was just kind of a wrench in that plan. Uh, as the warlord's laughing about this though, and before anybody can react, the kadir takes out a sword and cuts the warlord down. Good on him, good on him i I'm not even mad <laughs> that 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 I'm was glad called they didn't for. name them. yeah. Uh, At this point, um, as the warlord is is bleeding on the ground dying, Urza activates his mechanical jade stone carrier with his might stone. Uh, He makes it grab the Kadir and grapple him with a nat 20 roll, but then Ashnod responds with a lightning bolt. I mean, um, a spell of of bone hurting juice. (laughs) Urza is overwhelmed by nausea and pain, but continues to order the mechanical being to hold on to and kind of choke out the Kadir a little bit. At this point, there's a full battle outside. The dragon engine is challenging the Ornithopter army, and Yoshin troops are fighting with Falaji soldiers, with a few Corlysians joining in. Ashnod gets Mishra's attention away from the dragon and points out, Hey, Kadir, dying right here. Mishra turns the power of his weak stone onto the mechanical being, and this leads to the Kadir's freedom. Ashnod drags the Kadir away, and Urza recovers from her spell at this point, calls out to Misha, like, dude, we have to stop this. I I didn't want this. This this wasn't what I intended. But Misha's pretty pissed. Like, how could you have not known about this? Of course you'd fucking betray me again. Like, what is this nonsense? We came here for peace. Um, They argue a little bit. And then the mechanical being explodes from the contrasting efforts of the two stones acting on it. Oops. Well, there goes that one. There goes that one. As Urza is consumed by the flame of the explosion, the last thing he sees is Mishra retreating towards the dragon engine. We cut to later, when searchers find Urza in the pavilion, cradling the dead body of the warlord. The captain of the guard tells Urza that the Falaji are in full retreat, with minimum losses on their end. Just four ornithopters. Mishra and the Kadir retreated with the dragon engine into the mountains, and they don't know where they went. Urza then asks them why, finally realizing the warlord has planned this since the beginning. In fact, he realizes it would have been a massacre for the Falaji, if not for the dragon engine that Mishra brought with him. Bruh. I can talk. He demands accountability. He asks why he and Kayla were not told of this plan. He, in fact, demands to know why, because he must now return to Krug and tell his wife that her father is dead. And he needs all the reasons he can muster to make her understand, because right now, he does not understand himself. End chapter 10. War. War. War never changes. War never changes. <laughs> so this is a very dramatic chapter, and I, I cut down quite a lot of filler um, for people who are reading along with the book. Um, there, there's a lot of, like, fun little details of how the parties think of each other and how they're interacting with each other. And um, the meeting reunion of Urza and Nishra is... It's tense but really interesting because you can tell in a way that they're both happy and upset to see each other.
1: Yeah, they they aren't quite sure how to deal with it, but Mishra's so good with his outward, uh, like, outward image. Yeah, his mask. His mask that you can't really get a read on him, mm-hmm. but Urza, Urza has, like, a little bit of an inkling because.
0: He knows his brother. Yeah. He knows his brother. Like, oh, what the fuck? And the scene where, like, he calls to Misha again, and they're both kind of touching their respective stones, where it's just like, that, that hits pretty good. Um, yeah. Lo- love the writing for that particular scene, and love how, like it kind of does end with them being willing to talk a little bit, even though Mishra, you know, he makes that statement about like, I don't know if I really want to dig up the past. Like, I don't know if it's worth it, but Urza's like, well, I want to make an effort to reach out to you. I'm still thinking about you. All of the implications are really there. And, what a shame. This is another butterfly point. Or rather, this is the culmination of that butterfly point. Because, man, if the warlord hadn't pulled that bullshit... If Rusco wasn't there... Oh my god, fucking Rusko. I mean, we actual, love him, but... We love Rusko, and he caused the Brothers' War. Th- yeah. This is explicitly it, yeah, right he, here. He brought up the goblin powder. He got the b- goblin powder. He, The bombs were made because Rusko was clearly... like The secret project that Rusko's working on with the warlord was this. And it's... It's one of those where it's so easy to see when you're pulled away from it. Like the man, if they'd actually come here for a peace talk, it straight up would have worked. The Kadir, w- the Kadir was fucking down for a peace talk with these nations yeah. on the border of respect my tribe's fucking boundaries. That's all he wanted. Urza and Mishra could have reconnected. They might have been good brothers. Who knows? Yeah. We'll never know. And that's kind of like. I can, I definitely, this is a tragedy book, right? I've mentioned oh, that yeah. before. And um, I, I made the Romeo and Juliet uh, snipe the other day where you're kind of told from the get-go how it's going to end. And Brothers War mimics that in quite a way. Because we start with the prologue with with the end of the Brothers War itself. Like we, we know it's going to go to war. You know it's inevitable. And I think this book really rides on the emotional high of, God, what could have been.
1: Like It really does. That kind of untapped... Potential mm-hmm. that is right so there. latent and just a breath away, but outside forces do not let
0: it. Mm-hmm. So fucking close. Um, and what is it good for? Nothing. Our that's that's <laughs> <laughs> that's our uh,
1: reading comprehension quest uh, question
0: for e- today. Essay due by uh, Friday at noon. Uh, two pages. Uh, you can do double space, twelve point, Times New Roman.
1: Uh, uh you know uh cite your sources mm-hmm. um mla mla you know.
0: citation uh, it's probably just going to be the book uh so you know, that should be easy.
1: more <laughs> what is
0: it good for what though it good for um anybody who emails me their essays will get a full grade from me uh that's that's an actual offer on the table <laughs> and i'll be very happy and sunny will be happy to read uh, but there we go. That's chapter 10. We're not quite done with our reading yet, though. We've got chapter 11, and let's let's get through chapter 11 before we start talking about all of this. Because Chapter 11 is a very interesting conclusion. Chapter 11 is Affairs of State. We cut to a few months later, to Taunos' point of view. Krug is mourning the death of its warlord, which is hitting the country pretty hard due to the unexpectedness of the death. For the oceans. the warlord was the only leader they'd ever known for generations at this point. His death is, a. The story of his death is warping as people gossip. He was cut down by the Falaji Kadir. No, he was boiled alive by the dragon. His heart burst by Falaji magic. Some even say he saved Urza from a red-haired demoness summoned by the chief artificer's evil brother. I love that one actually. Yeah, that one's
1: pretty good.
0: They're not—they're not uncreative people. But I'll give them that. It's—it's it's the propaganda, but like that's really fucking funny because Ashnod was like barely there. Yeah, Ashnod was just like, "Hey, <laughs> what's up? What's up?" Like she she cast one spell on Urza that was correct, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Urza was coming at the Kadir. She reacted. Good job. Um. Anyway. The funeral for the warlord is, of course, lavish and long, and though the city settles afterwards, hatred is growing among the people for the Falaji that took their ruler from them. Falaji traders are lynched on the streets, explicitly stated. Yeah! Wild! Wild. It's, it's a immediate escalation. And on top of that, you get bands of, quote, adventurers who are raiding Falaji territory to seek revenge. On top of that, recruitment to the army has tripled in a month. So, yeah, that's happening. Eventually, Kayla starts making public appearances again as Queen of Krug, while Urza remains locked away. Rumors circulate that he's working on a secret weapon to challenge the Falaji with. In fact, he came back kind of as a hero. Uh, it's mentioned that he came back uh, piloting an ornithopter himself with the warlord's body, bringing it back to Krug directly. And uh, might not have even stopped at all in the whole process. Yeah, Which, like, which is pretty wild. It took him two days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he uh, halved the time of the journey. Uh, Also, of note, Rusko has not returned. He survived, but he's gone now. And on top of that, the captain of the guard has been reassigned, and every pilot that went to Corlinda was transferred. It's kind of the heavy implication here that Kayla's getting rid of everyone involved in the incident, though not outwardly punishing them. Damage control. The Fallagi are quiet. They raid into the sword marshes briefly, but not much else. Eventually, a word passes of a decree signed by Kayla and Urza. Nobody would raid Falashi territory without explicit orders. Everyone's pretty convinced it's because they're planning for a big organized strike, but again, I get the impression here that Kayla's actually trying to do some massive damage control. Yeah! Only Thanos knows what Urza is up to, kind of. Mostly he stays out of Urza's way, but all of the students have been dismissed from the ornery, and Urza is keeping the ornithopters ready to go. Uh, Thanos eventually questions what Urza is thinking of And asks why he hasn't struck back against the Fallagia At which point Urza actually kind of just explodes on him He literally is like, what the fuck are you talking about? War is a waste of resources Why waste precious lives Why waste power stones Why waste ornithopters In a battle to chase ghosts in the deserts Thanos is a bit more quiet after that around Urza
1: (laughs) Yeah, like,
0: ooh. ooh Touched a nerve Eventually, Thanos is called to Kayla's chambers, after a long time of Urza just straight up ignoring her. They meet, and Kayla dismisses formalities. She really seems like she just wants any company she can get in the moment, in light of her husband ignoring her for so long. Also, she's already pretty drunk, and I don't blame her. True! Um, She orders food for the two of them, and then asks how Urza is doing. Urza, who Thanos sees more than she does. Thanos responds that, as always, he's busy. She then admits that she didn't expect much from the marriage, but at least hoped for someone to talk to, or someone even to listen to, or an heir or two even. She then asks if Thanos can be someone she can talk to, because she's tired of being surrounded by people that she just talks at. She admits she's kind of jealous of Thanos because he can talk to Urza. She's not really on the level to engage with his interests, she doesn't know how the ornithopters or any of the artifacts work, and thus can't really hold his attention. Thanos at this point uh, a total, total best wingman pulls a pretty good psychoanalysis and tells Kayla Urza's feeling pretty guilty over her father's death and the responsibilities now placed on him to retaliate against the Falagi. He asks if she's tried talking to him about the incident, and uh, when she mentions that, you know, it might not be a good idea, he says, well, why don't, why don't you segue into it? Is there some sort of happy moment that you shared that could bring the two of you together again? The queen suddenly knows exactly what to do. She gives Thanos a note to give to Urza, telling him it's pretty urgent and uh, he better read it or else divorce. (laughs) (laughs) She then gives Thanos a chaste kiss on the cheek as thanks for his help. Thanos leaves and Urza returns 15 minutes later. She tells Urza that uh, she's got a problem. There's this small music box she has, an heirloom, and she thinks it's broken. Urza looks it over and tells her that the problem is the spring has wound down again. He'd need a key for it. Kayla then reveals that on a pink ribbon around her neck, she has a battered metal key, red with rust. She holds it out to him and asks, will this do? Urza looks at the key, the music box, and stares into the queen's eyes. Then he smiles for the first time in a month, saying, it will indeed do. It's so cute. And then they fuck! Fuck! It's happening again! Urza's getting laid, baby! Everybody gets their dick wet! (laughs) Everybody in this sequence! This is the sexy chapters! Finally! Let's fucking go. A few days later, Urza sends a note to Thanos to recall the students to the ornery, along with some plans for building some new mechanical men. But Urza himself won't be showing up till later. Maybe he won't show up for a while. Good on him. Thanos begins to fulfill Urza's demands. And with that, the chapter ends. Kayla, smooth as fuck Ben Krug. Holy shit. Right? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> like, I do like that she kind of needed Thanos to put the spark in her mind because the the very overarching theme of this chapter is they're both grieving in their own way yeah and um Kayla's clearly not getting what she needs and Urza's also not getting what he needs like he's he's kind of having a panic attack like he's shown looking over like blank sheets of paper not sure what to do and like when he explodes when Thanos is like well what are you gonna do like that explosion is he has no fucking clue what he's gonna yeah do. he's scared he's scared he doesn't know like how to handle what all's been thrust on him all the way Once, and the fact that like Thanos is able to be that mediator is really cute. I love that for him, and the fact that like again, Kayla brings it back to that music box is so fucking sweet. Like it was so cute,
1: and they do go over um, a point that I would like to bring up uh, that Kayla was very sheltered with Mm -hmm. her father and is being very weighed down by her new. Uh, responsibility Mm -hmm. she wasn't groomed properly for the position
0: yeah she absolutely wasn't groomed for the position at all and like even when you're first reading this chapter like it makes mention that the citizens were like yeah we thought he was invincible and he was never gonna leave us like nobody expected him to leave especially the way that he did and like not even like I feel like in a way the warlord would have wanted to groom Urza for the position, but since Urza just did not want to spend any time in the War Council, like, he didn't end up getting it either. Yeah. So you get both Kayla and Urza who are not prepared to be rulers of a city. Yeah.
1: Especially in the warlord's wake, because he literally was a warlord. Yeah, absolutely. And his daughter is very much a hopeful kind of... She She grew up in a land of peace. She grew up in a time... Of no war. Yeah. And has all of that. And she's like, still hopeful she has that gleam still. Mm -hmm. But now that everything's come crashing down, she's not prepared.
0: I feel really bad for her, but... I feel so bad for her. But in spite of that, I do love that you can see that she's doing the best she can with the damage control she's got. She really is. like, the Falaji hates kind of getting away from everybody. And I think that's the 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 dynamite is getting closer and this, this is the spark like just slowly traveling where it's like well of course they're going to be pissed because all they're hearing is that the Kadir cut the warlord down but then like they're not hearing about how the warlord absolutely started it like, yeah you know and so you're seeing the with Kayla dismissing everybody involved and saying like you know you guys don't get careers anymore like rusco I don't Know if Rusko comes back, actually. Yeah, like this may be it for us. This may be it for Rusko. It for Rusko. Um, <laughs> Just
1: in time for us to have an episode about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, there he is. <laughs> it's Rusko's end. And it's- then we get at the end of his story. Goodbye, Rusko. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us.
0: But it's the weight of this chapter is really heavy. And it really is. You can feel it in the writing, you can feel it in the character actions. And even with this incredibly sweet scene, it feels bittersweet. Um, I, I bring up for, uh, for reasons Sunny doesn't know, um, again, surprise tools for later, how, how her interaction with Thanos is portrayed here is very interesting. Yes. Pe- people who have already read the books will, will maybe know why I'm bringing, uh, this particular thing up. But, um, the mention of her not being satisfied with Urza and her eyes wandering a bit, is a point that you should keep in mind, put a pin in for later if you are not familiar with how the story goes. Um,
1: yeah, because it was pretty poignant that, like, I was convinced that Thanos was going to get laid. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was very much like, oh, she's so drunk, she's going to seduce him, but. No.
0: And it ended up not being that because, A, Tonos is a bro and managed to point that around. I, like, I unironically think with how she was talking early on that that was her intent. Yeah, that's- Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. She, she got food for them. She had brandy. She was in her lingerie. Literally
0: in her lingerie. And, like, it's the kind of thing where- um like it like i said sur- surprise tool for later put a pin in that note because uh this this is not a plot point that's going away anytime soon um it may it's not it's not what you might think it is but the fact that these actions are happening is also kind of part of that spark that's heading towards the dynamite
1: probably yeah uh, i can
0: see it so uh put put a pin in that but despite that we do get a very sweet scene um i think this is like maybe the most romantic thing I've, I've read in a magic novel. Yeah. Like, it was, <laughs> it was,
1: it was, it was so thoughtful that she, like, even though we know that Urza barely thought about it, mm-hmm. that, that their meeting was just like, oh yeah, I guess she was pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He did like, it wasn't like a huge event in his life, no. but to her, it meant everything. Absolutely. And Urza, I'm,
0: Why he like? He picked up on it. He picked up on it, and it was like, oh, it's like oh, you've held that this whole time. Like you remembered that meeting in that clock shop. Like, not even his his hyper autism could prevent him from seeing the significance of that. And he's like, oh, Uh, I have neglected my wife. Like, not only I've neglected my wife, but I think a lot of the implication here is because mentioned he's worried about going to Kayla because he feels guilty about everything that happened. He doesn't know how to face her. And then she kind of just wipes that tension away with this yeah. whole scene. And he goes, all right, I, I can return, not only return to you, but like do what I should have been doing for a while now. And, um, it's, it's very sweet and very tender in the wake of the, the spark the f- igniting, the literal <laughs> fucking
1: massacre of people. <sighs>
0: It's it's heavy, and it's only going to get heavier, but um, that's... We have nice
1: reprieves that, for now.
0: We do have some nice reprieves for now. So, in conclusion, we got the astronaut introduction, we got the, uh, the peace Mish talks. piece got his
1: dick wet, oh, let's yeah.
0: see. Urza got his dick wet, Urza too. got his dick wet. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think we're all happy that that happened.
0: It's about the only good thing about these chapters. Um... <laughs> uh, Unfortunately we must say goodnight to dear sweet Rusco. Uh, Goodbye, Rusko. Just Rusco. in time for his cards. <laughs> we we loved you. We loved you while you were here and despite your incredibly direct hand in causing the brother. Yeah, good
1: good job, <laughs> asshole, and we'll remember
0: you in therapy. We'll remember you in therapy. Amen. Well, As I mentioned, there's not a ton of news, and I'm not going to do our usual break because I kind of just want to go straight to our flavor texts. Uh, There's not a ton to get through, but there's a few that I found that are interesting. Uh, Obviously, first up, we are going to be looking at Ashnod. Uh, We got, uh, for the first time, some cards of her, because before the only, like, direct card slash depiction of her was the um,
1: dominatrix the the
0: dominatrix like not plain chase but whatever the other thing is where you start with like a a commander with like passive character or whatever so we've got two Ashnod cards the first is Ashnod flesh merchant Flesh merchant, love that for her. Uh, flesh mechanist, excuse me, oh. I can't read. <laughs> I was like, is she selling shit on the black market? <laughs> selling dicks, let's go. Uh, for one black, she is a 1-1 legendary creature with death touch. And whenever she attacks, you may sacrifice another creature. If you do, create a tapped power stone token. Also, for five colorless and exiling a creature card from your graveyard, you could create a tapped 3-3 colorless zombie artifact creature token. Good on her. This is a little more indicative of of stuff she will do later in the book, but this is the first depiction we uh, are going to see of her new and updated look that has her little red bob cut and the, quote, mannish armor. Oh, Uh, it's cute. It's cute, and it is more practical than the dominatrix outfit. Um, are you looking at the the little zombie man she's working on? <laughs> God, <laughs> yeah, <he's a> little... <laughs> that's unfortunate. And it's Ashnod's altar, <laughs> but um, I I do like her rework. Uh, the artists that redesigned her did a really good job. Of she still looks kind of severe. Um, she does. She she's got like the harsh angles of her hair and her armor. Um, she she looks very ractos, but I like it. Yeah, I think it works the spikes well. Spikes on
1: her fucking gauntlet and like her spikes coming out of her waist I don't know where they're coming from but there's spikes coming out of her waist and on her shoulders that can't be comfortable
0: no but- she she's she's the kind of person and as we get more point of view of her uh, this will kind of come together of she's very much trying to survive in a man's world and mm-hmm. how she dresses and how she acts I think are very indicative of that like it's not just she's thriving but she doesn't want people coming near her that she doesn't want um, oh so she, she is
1: literally spiky then she's
0: literally spiky like she's a beautiful woman and she kind of in a way like i don't want to say regrets that because sometimes she uses it and sometimes she owns it but other times i think she kind of like resents that and because people only see that in her and yeah. not like her mind so yeah i like this design i think it works pretty well from her and we get uh, another look in a second card of her that's ashnod the uncaring uh, Ashnod the Uncaring is kind of a commander substitute for the uh, the Mishra commander deck. Uh, she's two blue, black, and red. So Rakdos with a bit of control, which makes sense for her. Uh, this is a 1-4 legendary creature with death touch, and her ability is whenever you activate an ability of an artifact or creature that isn't a mana ability, if one or more permanents were sacrificed to activate it, you may copy that ability, and then you may choose new targets for the copy. So she's obviously in the title as the uncaring, she's very much about sacrifice triggers. Uh she's very much about getting value out of those sacrifice triggers. And you see kind of a more direct armor in here. Uh you've got metal plates kind of leaning over her. Um, unfortunately, the scryfall is just a little bit blurry. Can I get a better version of that actually? Scryfall! Up update your art, <laughs> please. I'm calling you out. We're we're trying to we're trying to get a little looksy here. Um Maybe okay. All right, so passing on. You can also see some of her her uh artifact creations to be around her and also her staff. This there's the staff has two fucking pixels to its name. It's the best quality I found on Google. <laughs> um, but there's the dolphin staff, and it's clearly not as big as it's it's the head I was imagining. <laughs> yeah, it's I
1: like her design with still with those spikes, but like with metal spikes instead of leather. Mm-hmm. She's rocking it. I like it. Yeah. There's a certain grace to her about her with amongst her, whatever soldiers these are. Mm -hmm. It's there's power and grace and I'm afraid of her. And that makes me very horny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's that's pretty much explicitly what her design is going for. So kudos yet again to the, the Brothers War designers. And we have a few other cards that I, I want to get into today. The first is a saga. Oh. You I'd be like, oh, another saga. Uh, I don't, I don't, I only learned about this because um, I was, I was searching a few episodes back for uh, cards that would be able to be tied to the kingdoms as we get introduced to them. And the saga is called Yosha Declares War. Oh, Good. And uh, it's for um, one and a red. And this was in Dominaria United, by the way. Oh, wow. So this was a fairly recent card. And for one and a red, you can also read ahead. You can choose a chapter and start with that many lore counters. Uh, skipped counter chapters don't trigger. Uh, the three chapters are thus. For chapter one, create a zero two 2 colorless Thopter artifact creature token with flying mm-hmm. named Ornithopter. Mm-hmm. For cha- Check. Yeah, for chapter two tap any number of untapped artifacts you control. When you do, Yosha Declare War deals that much damage to target creature or planeswalker. And then for chapter three, up to one target artifact you control becomes a creature with base power and toughness 4-4 until the end of turn. And we have the art here that is literally the Ornithopters bombing the Falaji cohorts and the dragon engine. So, Oh my god. There it is. It's really pretty. Like... It's very stylized.
1: It's very like, stylized. And it's almost in, uh, reminiscent of Indian
0: art. hmm Yeah. And it's very bold with the colors and very shape-heavy. And I love the chapters because, like, obviously you have the ornithopters, the ornithopters dropping bombs. But the final chapter is the mechanical man that Urza summons in very clearly. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, no, I was kind of shocked. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, they they depicted the scene, like, uh, set early <laughs> for some reason. But there it is. It's it's a gorgeous card. It's very I'd gorgeous. like to have that. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a saga of literally chapter 10. There it is. Uh, other things of note. So, what was I looking for? Um, I realized that... First of all, um, we didn't talk about when uh, Urza returned in Chapter 11, um, and the the, uh, the people are kind of theorizing about what he's going to do. There's mention of that mechanical man, and a lot of them think he's going to be making an even better version, an Avenger, that's going to, uh, you know, reap the the benefits of killing off the Falaji. It's and...
1: Karn.
0: No, it's not Karn. Turns oh. out there's just an Argivian Avenger card. Oh. That I'm pretty sure is uh, kind of what he's um, what he's eventually building. Uh, in fact, it has flavor text. Unable to settle on just one versatile being, Urza decided to create myriad adaptable machines. Uh, for six colorless, it's a 5-5 five, five artifact creature. And for one mana until end of turn, Argyvian Avenger gains minus one minus one and gains your choice of flying, vigilance, death touch, or haste gee that's a good card and you can kind of see the rotating center and leg setup uh on this particular artifact even though it's not from the brothers war set uh so i i will pull that and say i feel like that's the design of the avengers that he's working on for uh for the upcoming chapters for sure just a little little rotating metal guy who can do a lot of things (laughs) You got you He's got this. Spiky. You got this look on your face, like your your teeth are gnawing a little bit.
1: <laughs> I don't know how to feel about it. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's there. I don't know. I like it, but I have mixed feelings about it.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, but the I like the function of the card though. Like that's mm-hmm. that's brilliant. It's a good card. We got one final thing that I missed. Missed something Can you I it? missed it So uh, as Going back a few chapters to When Urza got married uh, It was mentioned that um, Urza was doing some politics And made these amulets that he gave To all of the uh, the, the temples of Krug Yes Turns out that's a card Amulet of Krug uh, For two colorless it's an artifact With an ability for two and tap Prevents the next one damage That would be dealt to target creature or player this turn That's a very useful card It's an old card Uh, I want to say It's uh, it's say 1993 to 2011 Maybe it's not as old as I thought I don't know, maybe it was a reprint What what does it say on here? um... Oh no, it's from Antiquities Okay, it's old Um, And it's got flavor text Among the first allies Urza gained Were the people of Krug As a sign of friendship, Urza gave the healers of the city Potent amulets Afterwards, thousands journeyed to Krug in hope of healing, greatly adding to the city's glory. And it's a, uh...
1: Pretty... I remember it mentioning that it was like a p- protection amulet.
0: Yeah, so it's a pretty just basic amulet, like the card itself is someone handing an amulet to someone else. Uh, it's kind of
1: pretty, actually. Yeah. Let's see, Margaret Organ Keen, shout out.
0: Shout out. But, uh, yeah, no, uh, was, was browsing through stuff and realized I never talked about that one when it was relevant. So I'm bringing it up now. Amulet of Krug. That's a card that's relevant.
1: It is there legal it is. in legacy, vintage Commander Popper and
0: Penny. Good job. You can, you can read Scryfall. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. You're welcome, everybody. You've learned. Uh, but there you go. Uh, there's, there's our, our card updates for, for now, um. There's not a ton else to go over, um, but I, I did think that saga was a was a nice little like, Yeah, that's uh, a nice little touch. Nice little touch. So that's our uh chapter summaries and flavor texts for the week. Next week we'll be doing chapters 12 through uh 14. And still not gonna be quite done with Act Two yet. We'll have another two chapters after that, but uh the like I said, that sparks heading to the dynamite and we're watching it roll. Alright. Prepare your buttholes. Prepare a butthole. I do have one thing as a teaser for our listeners. So my darling fiance, uh, monkey man Richard, who we were just uh just bullying earlier, dug up something pretty valuable for us. That uh, might be a a discussion for when we reach the end of Brothers War, because uh, um, I want you to look at them and not get spoiled in advance. Right. It is the old comics depiction of Brothers War. Oh,
1: yeah. I haven't. I saw that Mm -hmm. in the Discord. Yeah. And I haven't looked at it. I only saw the little snippets you had taken out of context. And I was like, this looks silly. So it's
0: wild I browsed through it it might as well be like I, I guess like canonically at this point it's fan fiction because the, the book I think is the more official depiction of Brothers War as proven by the fact that the cards are following the book there are changes that are so fucking bizarre to the plot that I don't know what they were thinking and, and like it never got finished so it's not I'm even the so whole excited. entire story but like I, all I'll start with saying is uh, pros and cons. Butch Dicasia, who who essentially is like, stop being weak little shitheads, you motherfuckers, and that's her vibe. <laughs> you know what? It's an interesting take on the character. It's so different from her portrayal in the books where I was just like, wow, we got two different uh we got two different diverging paths here. We have a
1: character who's three-dimensional. And then we have that. And then we have
0: the Rakdos lesbian. <laughs> And that's how
1: she's them. to lesbians. let me hear you, oh
0: my God, so we will in the future uh be going through that um a lot of the comics are gonna be really, really hard to find now, so um, my recommendation for people unironically is like Wayback machine uh Wizards of the coast actually published some of this, I think, for free on a website, which is where Richard got a lot of. The files, but they're no longer there um and my my uh my challenge to everybody is and i th- I think there there's actually i saw a a post on Warthos that was uh, unironically talking about i think explicitly this kind of thing where there were a lot of resources that Wizards of the coast used to have up that they don't have up anymore. And there's not really an official way to get them. Yeah, or there's easy no archive. Way to get them. There's not like a huge archive. So, you know, if it's something that you're super passionate about, if you, if you want to be able to read these comics along with us, other than just hearing us talk about them when we reach the end of Brothers War, you know, reach out to Wizards of the Coast. Say, hey, um, you know, we, we just dropped the Brothers War set. Uh, can we get a reprint of those comics? Or can we get them put somewhere where, you know, the community can access them? Because yeah. they are a, an interesting resource, even if they're not technically like the, the canon tail Anymore and uh, has some of the first depictions of, you know, Urza, Mishra, Ashnod, Thanos, all of that. Gix, too. Uh, really fucking funny depictions of gix is all I'm going to say. Yeah. But um, it's, it's a really valuable resource that was really fucking hard for Richard to get. Um, yeah. I'm weaving I'm out some implications of how, how some of these were gotten.
1: With so much history of magic that so much is so easily lost, mm-hmm. I feel. They should
0: have a a collection of all their old shit. I think really what it boils down to is there needs to be interest in it. Because yeah. it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, why would they do that if only like a couple people are interested? But if the Vorthos community out there is uh, very vocal about wanting these resources made available, I don't see why they wouldn't find some way to be able to pander to that. Especially if they do have the files and can either do like a reprint or if they don't think that's going to be profitable, like, Hey, throw it up on your website as a resource for people, like make, make an official place where we can view it. Because right now, like these comics are so old and so hard to get that there isn't really a good official resource for people to look at those particular things. And I I would love to, to see uh, some of this preserved a little better. Yeah.
1: I just all of the art. I feel should be preserved in some way. They should be proud of it.
0: Yeah. It's it's in the way that Scryfall is doing uh good preservation work by virtue of just having records of all of these cards and yes. all the other iterations of it. And um I think is a really, really valuable tool for people, not just for the game itself, but for people like us who do care about the story and who do care about the depictions of these characters over time. So yeah, no, I I heavily encourage people continue to to be vocal, uh continue to mention uh you know if if Wizards of the Coast ever has surveys or is ever talking about this particular thing, say hey, remember those old Brothers' War comics? Uh you know, can you find a way to to make them e- more easily available? Can you can you put them on your website uh with your short stories or something like that? Like I think they they just need to hear the voices. Yeah. Um uh, we we talked about how, you know, being being vocal about Rusco uh clearly somebody was listening and saw that we were being vocal about Rusko like hey you guys are thinking about Rusko and and I'm not saying they made the card because we said it they clearly had in- intended to always yeah, it was already this card there. on Arena but like this is the kind of thing where you know when people talk about it they go hey oh actually people are talking about this people care about this yeah. We make mention to the fact that people were talking about this and so. I think
1: that's the beauty of the Forthos community because we do care about the lore that they put so much effort into weaving into the gameplay and the story. There's just so much there that it's not accessible to people.
0: Yeah. And part of, I think what this, this podcast I hope is good for, for people is making some of these stories more accessible because uh, a lot of the books we're reading are very old. Um, Obviously you can still get the eBooks of them, but like, Fantasy books can be hard to get into, even though we've been, you know, like, heaping praises onto how Brothers War is written. Um, I mean, God, we started with a Thran. <laughs> like, yeah. ima- imagine people starting with the Thran. God help you. Yeah. I, I know we did, <laughs> but Shit. It, it, that's a rough read. Um, So, yeah, no, uh, be vocal. Uh, continue to shout to the world uh, what you want so that Wizards of the Coast will hear you. And they may ignore you, but at least you tried. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it... it, it... Shouting into the universe helps. I think so. I think like a lot of people have been complaining still about the 30th anniversary, uh, you know, thousand dollar packs, which continue to do so. But um, I mean, I I think there is a subsection of Wizards of the Coast that that is listening, whether or not the you know, that that particular demand or whatever has enough influence to be made into reality that's up to the business obviously but like i said like there it, are
1: people who care that are on
0: board yeah there are people who care, who clearly care about uh the story and the characters in it and on top of that too you know you're the consumer you know you do have more of a voice than you think uh your voice is your money and your engagement and you can use that and spend that as you will that's that's my life lesson to you about everything <laughs> always we live in a society and you can choose how you engage with that society so please do
1: yeah even though the our capitalist overlords at Hasbro um has a chokehold on Wizards of the Coast there's still people who have passion who have creativity and clearly with the dressing of the Brother Wars set that we got like they there was a lot of care put into that like they went over the book and they took a lot from it do you
0: do you think that the reason why there's Transformers cards in the Brothers Wars set is because they were planning on announcing Beast Wars the movie
1: (laughs) I am so close to killing you (laughs) I am so done with you. I'm over it. (laughs) I've got theories, people. I'm in here. Dead to me? (laughs) Podcast over.
0: All right, everybody, our dear, dear listeners, we love you guys. Thank you for your engagement. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Continue reading along with us and enjoying The Brothers War with us. And we'll see you... uh, Uh, I guess a little bit after the holidays is when you'll hear from us next. We'll try to keep you all updated, but Mm
1: -hmm. maybe we should make a Twitter. God, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We need to make something. I d- God, it's it sucks that Twitter sucks because it really is just the best, like, announcement forum for things like this. But, God, I don't want to make a Twitter. I don't uh, know. all the, yeah. the masses. all the masses. you want us to make a Twitter where we can make announcements for, for podcast release dates and things that we find? If so, uh, comment on the Reddit post. Email us. Uh, shoot me a pigeon.
1: Also, if you'd like to see uh, the Flavor Text podcast on YouTube too Mm. we can also cross upload there if the need is if there's a need or a want because i've been thinking
0: about that for a while and yeah let us know let us know. We, we already put onto quite a few platforms, so it's not hard to maneuver to other platforms if need be. So um, we can talk about, you know, hey, feel free to engage with us. Email us at the flavor text at gmail.com. Ping Let us, us just, on Reddit. Hit, ping us on Reddit. Ping us on the Tumblr that I occasionally check. Uh, you know, if you've got requests, if you've got thoughts, engage with us. And until then. And we'll engage back. We'll engage back and see you next time on Flavor Text. Bye bye. Bye, everybody. Have a happy holiday season, whatever you celebrate, and uh, stay warm.
1: Please stay warm. Unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere, then stay cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But only them.
0: But only them.